Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We start off this episode with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Over 100 detainees at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, went on hunger strike on February 1st. Northwest Detention Center, the largest immigration detention center in the Pacific Northwest, is operated by the private company GEO Group. The South Seattle Emerald reported that in a moment of conflict during the beginning of the hunger strike, protesters refused to allow staff to enter their units. In response, staff used pepper spray and tear gas on detainees. Due to public pressure and the brave commitment of protesting detainees, many of their demands have been met. These include promises to provide real meat instead of a soy substitute, allow more frequent haircuts, better access to medical and dental care, and bringing in an outside contractor for janitorial service. On February 13th, two persons in custody at the Lighthouse Youth Center in Bainbridge, Ohio, escaped by walking through the front door. One detainee was arrested the same day after being located near an alleged apartment burglary close to the facility. The other youth has yet to be recaptured as of February 27, 2023. Lighthouse Youth Center is a behavioral health and residential treatment center. At least 80 ICE detainees held at facilities in Kern County, California, launched a hunger strike February 17th. As of March 1st, the strike is ongoing at the Mesa Verde Ice Processing Center in Bakersfield and Golden State Annex in McFarland. A press release by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights explained that the strikers are, quote, demanding the immediate release of all individuals detained at the facilities and the shutdown of both detention centers owned and operated by the private prison contractor GEO Group. Detained people have been described, have described living conditions in both facilities as, quote, abhorrent and soul-crushing. The press release continued, The hunger strike is an escalation of a 10-month-long ongoing labor strike, protesting a dollar a day pay for work performed by detained individuals inside the facilities, including janitorial services. Facility administration retaliated against the strikers by placing them in solitary confinement. The hunger strikers explained the motivation for their strike in a statement released to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Quote, We have tried to meet with ICE and GEO multiple times to request they follow performance-based national detention standards to improve living and working conditions. As a response, some of our comrades have been sent to solitary confinement and others are being subjected to sexually motivated pat-downs. We are served expired food, unable to afford overpriced commissary items, receive unsatisfactory medical attention, and are emotionally affected by the lack of visitation opportunities with our loved ones. Our prolonged detention is unnecessary and inhumane, 
and we demand our collective release. From March 4th to 11th, thousands of people will be converging in Atlanta's Wilani Forest as part of the abolitionist struggle to stop Cop City. Reflecting this unprecedented mobilization, we're focusing this week on the history and current stakes of this struggle. For context, we start off with a message from a Muscogee elder who recorded a message about the forest last summer. Afterwards, we hear more insights from Sarah Alvarez of the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Then, the CLDC's Lauren Regan walks us through some things to be mindful of, whether in the streets or in the woods. After that, we hear Kali Akuno at a teach-in about Cop City, where he explains why this is not a project that is only local in scope. It's one of national and international consequence. We end the episode with a brief history of the old Atlanta prison farm. Let's get started. My name is Chabon Colonel, and I'm here in the Willana Forest, which is just outside of the city of Atlanta in the state of Georgia. It was only a few months ago that I stood in this forest, reintroducing this natural world to my presence. I spoke my name and my clan lineage in our ancestral language in order that this natural world would know what right I had to stand upon this earth mother. I sang songs in my ancestral language and I introduced my children to this forest and showed them the territorial domains where our ancestors thrived and from which they were violently removed from. I assisted in the first of many migrations of Muscogee people back to our homelands in hopes of educating our people that it even exists and we have a right to walk upon them and live as we see fit. But I am here also in hopes of educating others of how to exist in this world, how to exist in harmony and balance with all of creation and all of its diversity reminding us that violence in all of its many forms only eliminates the energy of life found in all. What is happening now in the Bilana forest and also in the rest of the world is violence. Extractive industries and political entities are continuing to lead the way in perpetuation of this violence in this country and abroad. The destruction of one tree in violence impacts all of life. The desecration of one waterway can have harm to every member of this world. The so-called construction of a militarized facility to train paramilitary forces is violent. Its impact on the suffering our communities locally and potentially across the world is unmeasurable. It must stop before more harm even takes place. Today, I stand in solidarity with land defenders and allies who are working, petitioning, and acting at every level to end this violence. I stand in solidarity with those who have recognized the dangers of this facility and are working to speak the truth. I was taught by my elders to act accordingly with the interest of those lives yet to come to this world in mind in all of my actions. My hope is that they will not have to suffer. I pray that this forest will still be intact when I am able to make footprints upon it once again, footprints that lay over those of my ancestors who walked here for millennium after millennium. I call upon all persons to join this movement in hopes that our children may live in peace and harmony for generations to come. Mado. Up next, we hear from Sarah Alvarez, followed by Lauren Regan, both from the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Some of the affidavits that were used to arrest forest defenders in the forest made this claim about the Department of Homeland Security uh, designating the Stop Cop City movement or Defend the Atlanta Forest movement as 
domestic violent extremists. But there's been reporting that like and the and the Department of Homeland Security coming out and saying like, no, actually, we didn't we didn't we we didn't make such a classification. And so like that kind of those kinds of like lies or, you know, gross exaggeration or copaganda, whatever you want to call it, like that's like kind of a quintessential tactic that you could expect to see. The other one that I think is like pretty obvious is like the state engaging in like really violent or aggressive repression tactics, like physically violent, physically aggressive. For example, in line three, there was instances of helicopters buzzing protesters who were locked down, which was is, you know, pretty extreme. And then really excessive uses of force and some arrests where folks were injured. In Atlanta, obviously there's been, you know, arrests which are violent, which can be violent. And there's been destruction of the forest, but there's also been like a literal police killing of a forest defender, which is, I mean, it's hard to imagine what could be more violent or aggressive from the state. Another aspect that can, you know, happen is um, pretty like onerous release conditions or trying to keep, you know, keep people in high bail on high bail. Sometimes we see like infiltration or, you know, data, you know, movement mapping or trying to gather data on activists, spying sort of stuff. And I guess what I wanted to say is the government engages in these tactics that are repressive when it seems like they're facing a strong opponent or a movement that's really strong. And so in the case of line three, like there were so, so, so many people who came out to fight that pipeline and the government put so much energy and, you know, millions of dollars into clamping down on those protests and those, you know, those acts of civil disobedience. And it's really clear that that's what's happening in this case, that this is like a ramping up against this campaign. You mentioned the use of high bails. And I was wondering whether you're thinking specifically about the Atlanta situation or in general, kind of how bail functions in terms of repressing movements. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So high bails are definitely high or excessive release conditions are something that the state can try to use. When folks are in custody, they are isolated from their, you know, they're more isolated from their community. They're isolated from their families. They can be isolated from, you know, medical needs, dietary needs. There's just a ton of pressure that comes down on defendants when they are incarcerated. And most places... Um, a court is supposed to consider when they're deciding whether or not to release you from jail when you get arrested. They're supposed to consider things like risk to the community or the likelihood that you won't show up to court. Like those are the kinds of general things that a court considers. And a lot of the folks in Atlanta were, and I think some still were held on no bail. Um, so that means that there's no amount of money that they could pay to get out. And that is frequently um, an intentional action to try and um, isolate people from the support that they would normally be receiving from their movement when they, you know, are out of custody. And, and it's, you know, it, it's really harmful. 
and sad. I think, you know, there's been a lot of litigation. I think folks are litigating that issue and bail conditions for defendants in Atlanta, but it puts enormous pressure on people to do anything that they can to get out of custody. And um, for that reason, it's kind of a key, you know, it's, it's something that the state does generally try to use. State repression is really scary and it can feel really overwhelming, especially for people who are like feeling more isolated. And I think that one, I think that people can take a lot of strength in knowing that like when you're facing these kinds of tactics from the state, you can kind of almost like rest assured that it's evidence that you are engaged in a struggle that the state views as a threat. But also, I just wanted to say that CLDC has like a ton of webinars that folks could totally access on our website, cldc.org. We have webinars on grand juries, on digital security. We have a whole thing on RICO. We have Know Your Rights trainings. And, you know, I think that at least for me, like, and I, I don't know, I assume for other people that it's better to enter any situation or to encounter any challenge with knowledge. And so I would just offer that CLDC has those resources and other folks have those resources too. And I know that there's lots of people from many different spheres who want to support the forest and want to support the activists that have been arrested and want to support the campaign. And so, yeah, knowledge is power. I would say is like if you are going to engage in direct action you have to take yourself seriously and that means knowing what you're getting into before you get into it that's not only regarding like knowing your rights which I do think are you know are important and our website like cldc.org you know since the pandemic started we've been doing these weekly webinars for activists on all sorts of topics, including security culture, state repression, police misconduct, know your rights for climate activists, digital security, you know, all these different topics. And if you're going to engage in activism that involves property damage, for instance, you are basically offering yourself up to the state if you are not prepared for that level of risk. The amount of discovery that I have had to watch of people wearing very distinct costumes and clothing, breaking windows, walking into stores that are obviously filming, you know, and and have video cameras everywhere, and they're not masked up, or they're like in such distinct clothing, and, you know, and now like even in Eugene where I am, you know, the cops just posted like 60 pages worth of screenshot photos of people who were, you know, breaking windows and walking into stores and taking things or just walking around. And now there's like warrants out for their arrest and, you know, the state is hunting them. You know, so we actually need to take responsibility for making their jobs so easy and just making ourselves such easy targets. You know, the first thing I would say is like, take yourselves seriously. 
you know, and and know what you're getting into and at least attempt to mitigate risk before you end up looking around in wonder why there's a warrant out for your arrest and then being shocked and appalled that you're being dragged into the state and prosecuted. I think people sometimes get caught up in the moment maybe and their brain kind of turns off for a hot minute and they end up in water that they were not prepared to swim in. I imagine it's hard to be always on the the receiving end of that discovery and seeing video after video. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the other thing I would say is, um, you know, although live streaming and citizen videography has been monumental with regard to holding police accountable for misconduct and abuse, it is also overwhelmingly being used by police and the state to incriminate and prosecute our side of the equation. People live streaming um, from actions and uprisings and showing the faces of people who are committing alleged crimes is working with the state. I mean, because there's cops sitting behind computers, their job is to screen capture and record your live stream. In fact, in one of the cases, BLM cases we have going on right now, one of the pieces of discovery received from the cops is a cop using his cell phone to record a computer screen of an activist's live stream showing people allegedly breaking the law. And that is discovery being used against those activists. So people need to get a little more savvy about how they're using their phones and recording, you know, things on the streets. Way more savvy, fast. And then they also Mm -hmm. need to um, be much more aware of how social media is being used against them and the movements because the state is just, you know, getting – warrants and sending letters to Facebook and Instagram, you know, they don't even need, you know, search warrants in order for these social media companies to, like, voluntarily hand over all your stuff, including your private Facebook chats and, you know, other things like that. So anything you put online, you should imagine to yourself, how is this going to look as an exhibit being used against me at trial? Um, because mm-hmm. it's possible that that is going to happen. So those are a few things that I would say, um, you know, that we really need to get a handle on really sooner than later because there is vast damage being done by our movement's failure to address these changes in technology and the way the state is capturing and using them against us. And now, Kali Akuno gives some national and international context. Atlanta's a Democrat-run city. And it's a black Democrat-run city. Right? A, A city run by black Democrats since the 1960s, the late 1960s. Right? It was, it was noted, uh, for having being one of the, the first major cities in the South, particularly the Deep South, to have a black mayor, right, who then shepherded in one of the most major economic transformations in the Deep South by bringing 
the Atlanta airport, right, of securing that contract and then bringing that airport to Atlanta. Now that airport was originally designed to be in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and why is this important? Um, although it sounds local, you got to put a lot of this stuff in geopolitical perspective, right? And so the U.S. military and the U.S. government wanted that airport in one of those two particular places because of its strategic location, both relative to how the U.S. geography, geography fits within itself, so production and transportation inside the United States, but also its positioning relative to you know, the broader game of uh, how they monitor and, and utilize their military assets to try to control the world. So when you see Atlanta, you got to put it in that context and understand that Cop City is not just a local little trivial thing. This is a deep international project, something that the capital and the state and both of all these little factions are both deeply invested in. Right, so one of the things I think is sorely missing, I lived in Atlanta for five years. Uh, uh, worked for the U.S. Human Rights Network for the time that I was there. And in the time I was there, worked with a group of students uh, at Georgia State University uh, to tackle a program called Gilly. I want y'all to look it up. I had to look it up again myself since it's been a couple of years. But Gilly stands for Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange. And this is a program that's been going on basically since the late 1980s that directly uh, interfaces Atlanta, the Atlanta PD, Atlanta sheriffs, and the sheriffs around that region that get directly trained by Israeli military forces and have been for many years now. Now this is just one of those particular little sinkholes. So if you think this just is about, well, they need a larger shooting range or they need, hell no, that ain't got nothing to do with what this is about. Uh, and without a deeper an, an analysis and presentation of this, this piece, while the AJ piece is good, is totally out of context. Because you just think they killed Tortuguita because they were like mad or upset or that they're pursuing this because they just don't like anarchists or ain't got nothing to do with that. Right? This is a vital project that they need particularly to go through because they are very clear, both sides of this Democrat and, and, and Republican coin, that the next phase of governance domestically is going to have to be a brutal one, right? They are going to have to govern or attempt to govern through more direct application of, of force against all of us. Not just black folks, not just indigenous folks, not just Latinos, all of us. Reason being, despite how, you know, they want to, you know, portray the economy is, you know, it's got the lowest uh, unemployment rate since the 1950s, and um, you know the the jobs are growing and expanding. Uh, but they themselves would didn't tell you on MSNBC and CNN, even though all this supposedly is doing great, most of the American public, you know, is is totally uncomfortable with the economy. So you got figures that don't add up to reality. Right, and they totally misaligned the figures. Like, if I got to work three or four jobs, just basically to make ends meet, and then have other little side hustles, whether they legal or illegal, you know, to make things meet, something is deeply wrong with with this society and where it's going, and it cannot deliver on the goods or the imperial promises that they used to make 
to white folks and like, y'all go with this program and we'll give you these material rewards. Well, when you can't get the material rewards anymore, what does that lead to? If that's what so much that they were banging their rule on, right? Uh, and this is critical for us, I think, to understand because they, they it is about ideology to a, a large degree, why you know, there's so many reactionary forces that have come, come to the fore uh, and why fascism or neo-fascism is growing. But there's also a material dimension to this. Like the empire cannot deliver on the goods and services it once promised, right? And if you want to break it down in some simple ways, they can't promise white men that they would have what their grandfathers once had, you know, uh, in the position that they once had. Uh, and once that promise is gone, the, le the last thing that's available for them to really consolidate their rule is the stick. So they're going to be building sticks everywhere. This is just one of the more advanced columns, like one of the more advanced columns. And I think the piece that we have to really figure out in terms of political clarity, why I ask that very subjective question. Because we have to figure out, I think those of us in this room, whether you consider yourself left or liberal, really doesn't matter. The question is, what are we trying to, to advocate? What is our program? What is our vision for another society, a different society, a humane society, egalitarian society? How do we work on that together despite our political differences? And we end this episode with Sasha, who gives a brief history of the old Atlanta prison farm. My name is Sasha Tico. I live in Atlanta. I moved here in 2019 to start a PhD program in anthropology. So, so I started doing research kind of intensively on the history of the old Atlanta prison farm, which was roughly like like almost 400 acres of land that is just south of the city limits. So it's technically in unincorporated DeKalb County in Georgia, um, just like five minutes from, from the official limits of the city of Atlanta, but it was run by the city of Atlanta. So it was a city-run um, prison, um, prison farm that was opened in 1919. And uh, kept in operation as a prison um, until roughly 1990, when they auctioned off the remaining livestock and equipment and phased out the, its use as a prison. At its peak, it housed roughly a thousand inmates, and that was in the 50s and 60s. Was its peak, uh, both in its capacity as a prison and in its output as a farm. So it was like the fields were fully tilled fields. They're growing all kinds of vegetables, collard greens, okra, and also raising livestock like beef and pork for slaughter. And the food would mostly used to feed prisoners both in the prison farm and in the other city jail in downtown Atlanta. So it was put forth as a cost-saving measure for the prison system of Atlanta. After the 50s and 60s, the mayor at the time, Sam Lassell, started to close down the like farm operations because uh, there were like, I mean, for decades, decades reports of abuse on the farm of all kinds, which I can get into. There was no um, like hospital on site. Um, so there was very poor medical care and people were getting sick. And it was, it was sort of like too much of a liability to run 
like financially speaking, um, legally speaking, for the city to run a fully operational farm. So they phased out the uh, vegetable production and the continued ra raising livestock um, up until the 90s. And then after like around 1990, although the, the precise dates are somewhat unclear still, after 1990, the, the land was basically left abandoned by the city. And that's how forest grew up, essentially. So there, the reason that there is a forest at all in that land is because, and a new growth forest specifically, is because it was farmland that was then abandoned. And so pine trees grew up and privet and all other kinds of both native and invasive species. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.